Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Outrageous Joy. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. I first heard the name Amy Carmichael a few years ago while reading a book Uh, by the late Warren Wiersbe called 50 People Every Christian Should Know. I saw her name in the table of contents uh, as I was looking for men that I did know, such as Jonathan Edwards, J.C. Ryle, Charles Spurgeon, uh, Hudson Taylor, and others that I wanted to read more about. However, after learning more about Amy Carmichael, this week, I can see why Wearsby dedicated a chapter to her and why so many authors have written books about her. Amy Carmichael was a tenacious woman of God, and she had an extraordinary ministry. She was born in 1867 in Northern Ireland to a financially secure, pretty well-off Christian family, Uh, Carmichael gave her life to Christ at age 16 and then surrendered to the Lord's call to full-time ministry at the age of 19 while attending an evangelical conference. The Lord had given her a great burden for impoverished girls in her hometown that worked at the uh, the various mills. And so uh, she started a ministry called The Welcome, handed out tracts, passed out food, and started Bible studies for these girls to disciple them after they had accepted Christ. The Bible studies grew so much that she had to move into a local Presbyterian church, and then eventually, as the ministry continued to grow, had to get her own building. While still in her early 20s, Carmichael moved to Manchester, England, to start another ministry in the inner city there. But health problems and high crime forced her to move in with and care for an elderly family friend. That was just the first of many setbacks that she would experience in her desire to try and serve the Lord. While living at this senior saint, Carmichael heard the famous missionary Hudson Taylor, who had pioneered and established China Inland Mission. She heard him speak at an event and felt the Lord calling her to become an overseas missionary. And so uh, the next year, she applied to China Inland Mission, but her application was rejected because of her health problems. In the next year, she set sail to Japan under the flag of another ministry organization to be a missionary there, but after just 15 months in Japan and some fruit, she was forced to come back to England because of ongoing health issues. A year later, uh, in 1894, Carmichael received an invitation from a friend to uh, join a mission work already taking place down in India. And so, in 1895, at the age of 28, she landed in India, learned the Tamil language, uh, studied the Hindu caste system, and began reaching new converts, especially young girls. 
You see, back then in the late 19th century, early 20th century, it was custom for parents to sell their children, Hindu parents, to sell their children to the temples in order to earn favor with the gods. And then those little girls were raised to be temple prostitutes. Such a practice has been outlawed since, thankfully. But as word spread about Carmichael's ministry, young girls would escape from the temples and come to the compound where she was living to seek refuge and protection. She eventually had more than 50 children living with her at a time and earned the name Amma, which meant mother in the native language. Her burden for rescuing these girls, and eventually boys needed rescued as well, uh, often led to clashes with local authorities and parents because uh, the parents didn't want to lose favor with the gods that they had made the offering to. And converting to Christianity was seen by local authorities and by the parents as the ultimate betrayal. And in some cases, the children were tortured or even killed for converting to Christianity. Sadly, in 1931, Carmichael faced yet another major setback with her health when she suffered a serious fall that prevented her from ever walking again. Over the remaining 20 years of her life, she wrote 13 books. Basically, she, she did what I couldn't do, which is, okay, well, if I'm going to be confined to a bed for the rest of my life, I'm going to start writing books and journaling, and writing devotions, and things like that. So she did. And she did that for the remaining 20 years of her life until she died in 1951. In total, Amy Carmichael spread the gospel and discipled children in India for 56 years until her death in 1951. And once she arrived in India in 1895, she never left India, never married, and never took a sabbatical or a furlough from her ministry. Now, as if Amy Carmichael leaving the comforts of England and persevering through intense ministry challenges was not already impressive enough, my cage has been rattled this week by something that she wrote from her bed during the final 20 years of her life. She writes this, there is nothing dreary or doubtful about the Christian life. It is meant to be continually joyful. We are called to a settled happiness in the Lord, whose joy is our strength. Carmichael further explains her views on joy in another book that she wrote, when she writes, joy is not gush. Joy is not mere jolliness. Joy is perfect acquiescence, acceptance, rest in God's will, whatever comes. When I read those quotes about Amy and her views on joy, what I found my soul just screaming was, how can Amy Carmichael write this about joy, call it a settled happiness, 
Near the end of a life of pain, suffering, disappointment, and intense spiritual opposition. And by the way, I did not mention, I didn't have time to mention all the other setbacks and challenges she faced in her ministry because of the sake of time. I found myself asking, uh, my soul asking the question this week after reading those quotes by Amy. What kind of joy is this? How is she able to write this? Because in many Americans' eyes, American evangelicals of the 21st century would say her life was a failure. Well, these are questions I'm hoping we'll find answers to as we study the writing of a man who figured it out. And this is one of many reasons why we're beginning a new series today in the book of Philippians called Outrageous Joy. I think it goes without saying that Amy Carmichael had some outrageous joy. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 1 and pull out the sermon notes in your out, uh, excuse me, the sermon note outline in your worship folder. Uh, if you would bear with me, uh, I'm going to do a lot of uh, ground laying or foundation work this morning for what we're going to be learning in the weeks ahead. So I've got quite a few blanks for you to fill in and uh, slides to show you to kind of give you a big picture overview of this book so that as we move forward in the coming weeks, I'm going to build on that foundation and tie things together. I'm going to bring up some of the things I introduced you to today. So as you turn there uh, to Philippians chapter 1, let me give you some background on Philippians. Um, first of all, it was written by the Apostle Paul approximately 61 to 62 A.D., while he was under house arrest in Rome. Uh, during his two-year incarceration, from 60 to 62 AD, he wrote three letters. You probably have heard of the other, I assume he wrote three other letters, you probably have heard of them, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Uh, Philippians was delivered to the church in Philippi by Pastor Epaphroditus. When the believers in Philippi heard Paul was incarcerated, they dispatched their pastor, a man named Epaphroditus, whose name is going to come up in our study over the next few weeks. Uh, they dispatched him to go minister to Paul. While in Rome, Epaphroditus became so ill that he nearly died. But the Lord spared him, and after recovering, Pastor Epaphroditus took Paul's letter back to the church in Philippi. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony 100 miles east of Thessalonica. It sat, along with Thessalonica, on an east-west highway called the Ignatian Way. Uh, it was a major interstate, for lack of a better term, back then. And what it meant is that any city located on the Ignatian Way generally was pretty large in size, pretty wealthy or prosperous because of all the commerce that would come uh, through those cities on that highway. The Ignatian Way connected Rome on the western side of the empire to cities on the far east, like Philippi. Philippi was also the first European city that Paul visited on his second missionary journey around 49 to 50 AD. The backstory on Paul's experiences in Philippi are found in Acts 16. We won't turn there for the sake of time, but if you want to read that, 
Maybe tomorrow during your devotions, you can get some background on what happened when Paul showed up in Philippi and how the church got started. While there, Paul and Silas, and this is detailed in Acts 16, they led a woman named Lydia and her family, a Philippian jailer and his family, to faith in Christ. These families most likely formed the core of a new church plant that started after Paul left town. It's believed that Paul passed through Philippi again seven years later, in 57 AD, on his third missionary journey. Next, there's always purposes or goals that Paul has when he writes. He's very intentional. Uh, Unlike other letters that Paul wrote to churches, Philippians is probably, or most arguably, the warmest one that he wrote, the most friendly letter. It's affectionate in its tone. And like other letters, it contains teaching aimed at addressing problems the church in Philippi was struggling with. This is just another reminder that going back to New Testament times would not make doing church any easier because every church in the New Testament had problems, just like every church today has problems. They all have strengths and things they're good at, and they all have things they struggle with. The Apostle wrote to the Philippians with at least four purposes in mind. And recognizing these themes helps us as we work our way through the book uh, because it helps us interpret the book properly and understand what Paul's getting at. And so here's four goals that he had in mind. First of all, and probably most predominant, uh, he was expressing gratitude for support. Philippians was a thank you letter. Paul was writing a thank you letter or a thank you note to the church in Philippi for their financial support that they had sent with Epaphroditus and they had also supported Paul while he was ministering in Thessalonica. So this was a generous church and they supported Paul financially and he was very grateful for it and he talks about that in the letter. Next, he wanted to emphasize unity over disunity. As generous as the Philippian church was, there was disunity threatening to divide the body. And so the apostle apostle calls out threats to unity such as selfishness and grumbling and unresolved conflict. He also urges them to pursue unity throughout the letter, which we're going to see repeated several times that I'll highlight for us. Next, the third goal or purpose that Paul had is to elevate suffering. He was suffering for the gospel as an incarcerated prisoner, but he also wanted the Philippians to not feel sorry for him, but instead to see suffering as a privilege. Suffering for the gospel is something worthy. And so throughout the letter, he urges his readers to see suffering for the Lord as part of our calling, part of the Christian experience, and worth the cost. And then finally, the fourth goal or purpose that Paul had in writing this letter, and it's, it's a common one, it comes up in just about every letter he writes to churches in the New Testament, and that was exposing false teachers. As we've seen in other Pauline letters, the apostle uses the power of his pen to wage war against false teachers who are trying to sneak into the church or steal or peel away believers. 
next, there are some key words that come up over and over again that are repeated throughout the letter to the Philippians. Um, in addition to the purposes or themes of the letter, Bible scholars often look at repeated terms to try and identify the major thrust of what the author is trying to say or get across. Authors usually have favorite words that they use or words that they repeat. I believe these are on your outline so that you can fill them in. The biggest, most pronounced theme that nearly every scholar and theologian agrees on is that the book of Philippians is about joy. Joy or rejoice is repeated 13 times throughout the book. The noun joy and then the Greek word, the verbal imperative to rejoice, 13 times. Next, the next theme is unity. Now, I kind of touched on this a minute ago, but Paul urges his readers to be of one mind, to have the same love, to be of full accord with each other, and to resolve conflict. And so we're going to look at that in the coming weeks. How does a church build unity, and what are the things that threaten unity or tear it down in a church? And then thirdly, the third key word or theme is Christ. The apostle clearly likes the Greek word Christos, uh, which means anointed one or Messiah. He uses it 36 times in Philippians. Now here's, I sometimes like statistics, and so this is a little interesting to me. Maybe you'll find it interesting too. Uh, 36 times in Philippians, that's more than Colossians which was four chapters long as well, but less than Ephesians, which is six chapters long. And while this comes as no surprise in a letter written by Paul, what is worth noting is that he mentions Christ, the Greek word Christos, 36 times in four chapters or just 104 verses. In other words, the name, this particular name for the Lord is used less in longer books. Okay? Now, our theme verse is I like to choose a theme verse that we can try and learn together throughout a book series is Philippians 4 4. Honestly, I have to admit, I tried to look to see if there's another theme verse that I could use because just about every commentary says Philippians 4 4. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe there's another one. And as I looked and looked, I narrowed it down to three options and went, ah, it's got to be 4 4. It has to be 4 4. That is what he's trying to get across. And so let's say that out loud together, even if you don't feel like it. We're going to feel like it some Sundays, okay? Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Oh, that's good. I think some of you were, you were rejoicing as you said that. That's awesome. So uh, if you've ever struggled to find joy that is supposed to come with living the Christian life, then the book of Philippians can help. One of the first things we can do to find joy is to regularly pray for others. And that's our big idea for today from chapter 1. Praying biblically for others brings joy to us and to them. Praying biblically for others brings joy to us and to them. 
I'm going to get prophetic here for just a moment, but I felt this really needed to be said. I think many evangelicals today need to seriously rethink how they think about prayer. I find that many either pray too selfishly or they take prayer too lightly. They pray too selfishly in that they only pray for themselves or when they're desperate for God to show up because they got into a mess. And then even still, they then pray for things that God doesn't want for them. Or, others pray too lightly by tossing around the phrase, praying for you, man, praying for you, like it's a greeting or something, like you would say to a passerby, how you doing? I'm doing great, how you doing? Without actually realizing what they're saying and what it's supposed to mean. In other words, when we say praying for you, or I'm praying for you, we're either not saying what we really mean, or we don't really mean what we say. I'm always convicted about how casual even I can sometimes be about prayer when I read this quote that I'm going to share with you from Methodist evangelist Samuel Chadwick. He was a passionate prayer warrior and wrote some very powerful books on prayer. He ministered in Great Britain uh, towards the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Chadwick writes this, Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men or women of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. So, when a Christ follower prays in Jesus' name for someone else, they are entering the throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to request that he make the person we are praying for a priority in his kingdom operations for the day. We are asking the one who spoke the universe into existence and whom demons fear to grant our request by exerting his spiritual power to change our reality. May we never forget that. That's what it means to pray, and to pray for someone else. I say all that because I, I, I need to get that out there before we dive into the verses we're going to look at today, because Paul prays for the Philippians. And he shows us a model prayer or some, some things to pray for when we pray for others. And so with that, if you would, look in your Bibles at Philippians chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So, just as Paul did in most of his letters, especially his letters to the Ephesians and Colossians, he begins with a greeting, identifying who he is, who's with him, and then who he's writing to, and then he begins with a prayer. 
He models three principles we should remember when praying for others. Here's the first one on your outline, the first of three. Uh, Number one is this, there is joy in praying for others with thankfulness. There is joy in praying for others with thankfulness. He says to all the saints in Christ Jesus, you might remember in my message last week that uh, uh, this is something that Paul liked to do in his greetings. He liked to address his audience as saints in order to remind them of what God had called them to be. He didn't mean that they were sinless or without fault. Instead, he meant to say, you've been set apart to be used by God for something special. That's, that's what the Greek word means uh, for saint. It, it means to, it literally means holy ones to be set aside by God for holy use. Next, he references the overseers and the deacons. Because this church plant had been around for a few years, it seems there was sufficient time to either identify or groom church officers. Uh, overseer is simply a synonym for elders. And Paul likely mentioned the leaders of the church here in his greeting to honor them, but also, I think possibly to let them know they would be responsible for implementing what's in the letter. It would be their job to make sure his instructions get done. So the first place to start when praying for someone else is to remember, and here's A and B on your outline, what they mean to you personally. Because that's what Paul does. To remember what they mean to you personally. In verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. You've no doubt seen this on a greeting card or maybe on a social media post or a coffee mug. It's a very popular verse. been used for years. I've seen people sign letters and cards with it. It has even greater significance when we understand the context in which Paul wrote it, though. In fact, I've I've been listening to a song this week by one of my favorite Christian bands, uh, Caveman's Call. They're not together anymore, but they have a song um, they wrote in honor of Rich Mullins after Rich Mullins died suddenly in a car accident about 20 years ago. And um, uh, the name of the song is I Thank My God. And the chorus is, in essence, Philippians 1.3. I thank my God every time I remember you. And they're, they're talking about uh, the mentoring relationship that Rich Mullins had with them. And so I've had that in my head all week. Philippians 1.3 in the chorus, in the melodic hook. But verse 3 connects to the end of the letter in, verse, in chapter 4, where Paul goes into an extended thank you for their financial support. They were generous in supporting his ministry. And so the apostle identifies a personal characteristic, in this case, their generosity. And he says, I thank the Lord for you, for that, for your generosity. I thank the Lord that he used you as a channel to meet my needs. And so what what I'm trying to get at here is that when we pray biblically for others... One of the things that God can do in our hearts as we go to him in prayer for someone else is we can become other-focused instead of self-focused, and we can become less critical if we will thank the Lord for something we see in that person. 
Lord, thank you for my child who is funny and keeps our family lighthearted. Lord, thank you for my spouse who keeps our family organized and manages the finances. And Lord, now would you strike them down with lightning for what they said to me yesterday? You know, just so, so you start out with gratitude for how God has made them or using them in your life. That's what Paul did. Next, letter B, uh, when praying for others, we should also remember what they mean to the church corporately. So notice in verse 5, Paul says, because of your partnership in the gospel, so he also thanks the Lord for how the Lord was using the Philippians globally in the universal church or um, corporately. Paul saw them as more than donors. Their generosity made it possible for them to become partners with Paul as he took the gospel to new frontiers. So, again, praying biblically for others brings joy to us and to them. Well, how? Because it forces us to shut off our critical spirit for a moment so we can thank the Lord for the blessing the other person is to us. Next, let's look at uh, verses 6 through 8. Paul continues, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So the next truth that Paul shows us about when it comes to praying for others is that, number two, there's joy in praying for others with fondness. We should pray with thankfulness, but now he shows us we should pray with fondness. Let's not forget that ten years had passed since Paul led uh, Lydia and the Philippian jailer and their families to faith in Christ. Ten years had passed. Granted, he had been back seven years later, but then even since his last visit, another three, four years had passed again. Yet because of the bond they shared in the Lord Jesus Christ, it was as if no time had passed. The Philippians were probably thinking, the Apostle Paul? He's praying for us? He's 800 miles away in Rome, and he's thinking about us? He's got all these other churches to take care of and manage, and he's praying for us? Like, how did, how did we get on his schedule? He's incarcerated. <laughs> he's, he's chained up to a soldier, and he's praying for us? Well, we can foster a fondness for those that we're praying for by focusing on, here's letter A under number two, what God is doing in them. By focusing on what God is doing in them. Paul references their progressive sanctification in verse six. I know that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Even though this was a church that had problems, the apostle Paul knew the Lord was also working in them. He was expressing confidence in the character of God who who finishes whatever he starts. And even though Paul couldn't be there to spur on their spiritual growth, he was confident the Lord was still working in them. 
I think verse 6 can be encouraging to all of us, especially those of us maybe that have a child who's away at college or maybe grandchildren on the other side of the country or a friend who's struggling in their walk with the Lord and we, we wish maybe we could be there to help them spiritually and we're worrying and fretting. Uh, verse 6 is a reminder that, no, the Lord is with them. He's working in their life to bring them closer to Christ, even when we're not there. And the Lord doesn't need us there to work in their life. Because he's there when we can't be. So, we can foster fondness for those we are praying for by focusing on what God is doing in them, but also, let her be, by focusing on what God is doing through them. What God is doing through them. He says in verse 7, you are partakers of me, or with me, excuse me, of grace. When the apostle was spreading the gospel across the world or simply witnessing to soldiers that he was chained to, uh, he envisioned the Philippians as being there taking part. Notice uh, in the ESV, partakers, which basically it means to take part in. He saw the Philippians as being there with him. And in that way, the Lord was working through them to help spread the gospel. Now, you probably have heard the popular cliche, people don't know how much, excuse me, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? Well, while I was studying these verses this week, I couldn't help but wonder how much the Lord cares about our prayers if we don't care for the people we're praying for. I think, I think these verses are a good reminder that when our hearts are moved to pray for people in love, God's heart is moved to answer our prayers. This means that there may be times where you and I need to talk to the Lord first and ask him to soften our hearts before we ask him to work on someone else. So it helps to focus on what God is doing through them. Maybe how the Lord is using them in the church. Maybe how the Lord has used them in your life or in your family. Uh, or maybe in the department where you work. And then to pray for the specific need or concern you have. Next, let's look at verses 9 through 11. Paul continues his prayer and wraps it up here. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here's number three in your outline. Uh, there is joy in praying for others' progress. There is joy in praying for others' progress. Notice how Paul prays for at least four areas of spiritual growth. You might want to underline them in your Bible. Uh, first off, he mentions growing in their love for Christ, and I think it could also mean their love for one another. He says in verse 9, I, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Secondly, 
He prays for their knowledge of the word. Thirdly, he prays for their discernment. It's a, it means their ability to distinguish between good and evil. And then fourthly, he prays for their holiness. That they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ when Jesus returns. That they would be ready for Jesus' return. All four of these traits are linked together. You see, if we, if we love Christ, we'll read his word. If we read his word, we'll get better at knowing what's good and evil. If we learn what's good and evil, we'll grow in our holiness. This kind of growth leads to more joy. And when we see growth in others that we've prayed for, it'll increase our joy as well. So praying biblically for others brings joy to us and them. How? Well, when we pray God's word for someone, we almost always pray God's will. And when we pray God's will, we'll see more answers to prayer. And when we see more answers to prayer, we'll experience more joy. We know from verses 9 through 11 here and in other verses around the New Testament that it is God's will for those who profess faith in Christ to mature in their faith. So praying for someone's maturity, that they would grow in their walk with the Lord, is God's will. And at the same time, if there is no desire to grow over time, it raises the question about whether the person actually knows Jesus in the first place. Because those that have been born again desire to grow. Well, applications. What do we do with what we've just read here in chapter 1, this prayer? What do we do with this? What should we do now that we've heard this? Well, here's two applications that came to mind. When praying for others, first of all, let them know you're praying for them when appropriate. Like if you just had a major fight with your spouse, I... I don't recommend saying, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. <laughs> that you would apologize. Before we go to bed tonight. That you wouldn't be able to sleep. You know, don't, don't. When appropriate, let them know that you're praying for them. Because intercession is entering the throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord's, Lord of Lords on behalf of someone else, you could greatly encourage them by letting them know that you're praying for them. By letting them know that you are contacting heaven on their behalf. All it takes is a note in the mail, a text, an email, a quick phone call, or a hug the next time you see them. And if you're concerned that you might forget to pray for them, instead of just saying, hey, I'll, I'll be praying for you, stop and pray for them right there. Do a 10-second prayer. It doesn't have to be very long or eloquent. You can just put your, put your hand on their shoulder and say, Lord, I just want to pray for Joe right now. Help him, minister to him, provide for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes we need to hear others pray for us. And that can be a great ministry as well. Paul encouraged the Philippians in the same way. Notice he wrote in a letter, and I'm not saying you need to write a letter, but he wrote them to say, I am praying for you. 
He didn't just pray for them in secret in prison. He told them in writing, and it encouraged them. Number two, when praying for others, pray they will become more like Christ instead of more like you. Pray they would become more like Christ instead of more like you. We all do it, oftentimes without realizing it. We ask the Lord to fix weaknesses in others that happen to be our strengths so we can tolerate them better. We, we pray things like, Lord, please help my wife to be more organized. In Jesus' name, of course. Or Lord, please help my husband to have more fun, like me. For the glory of your name, of course. Or, Heavenly Father, please help my children to win their baseball game today and to never get hurt. For, for your glory, of course. But all the while, we don't pray for what is actually God's will for them. And that is that they become more like Christ. That, that whatever God is doing in their life would be used to make them more like Christ. Paul prayed for others to grow in their walk with the Lord because he knew that that would solve any other problem they might be facing. And we should do the same. So, it means that prayers like this might be more appropriate, or would be more appropriate. Lord, please help my sibling who's growing through a divorce right now to come into a personal relationship with you. Help them to see they need you. They need Christ. Or, Heavenly Father, would you please use this cancer diagnosis to deepen my spouse's relationship with you, and if it's your will, please heal them. Because the Lord uses trials and suffering to bring us closer to him, to deepen our intimacy with him. So, pray they become more like Christ instead of more like you. Well, you've done a great job taking notes. I appreciate you following along, and I hope you'll continue to join us for this series. I'm excited to learn new things in the book of Philippians, and I'm excited to learn some of the secrets that Amy Carmichael knew about joy. Because praying biblically for others brings joy to us and them. It brings power, it brings life, it brings God into the situation. And so I leave you with this question. Who are you going to pray for this week? And are you going to let them know? Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for locking Paul up in Rome so that he could write. And we, we know, Lord, that Paul probably didn't like that all the time because he wanted to be out preaching more, sharing the gospel more, starting more churches, but you and your infinite wisdom knew that he needed to write some things down before he went home to be with you. And Lord, it seems you did the same with Amy Carmichael. As difficult as it must have been for her to be sidelined the remaining 20 years of her life, it also seems that in your sovereignty, in your providence, you wanted her to write some things down. 
that she wouldn't otherwise write. And so, Father, if, if there are things like that that you're doing in our lives, where you are working for good in ways that we can't see, would, Lord, would you just help us to see it so we can be encouraged? If, if there maybe are some things you're preventing us from doing, or if there are some afflictions you've given us, that you've given because you want us to do something else other than what we want to do. Would you make that clear? Would you show us, Lord? Father, I want to just pray for those who are here today that maybe haven't felt joy in a long time. Please, Lord, would you begin to do a work in their hearts to change how they think about their emotions, how they think about you. And Lord, would you help all of us here today to learn how to rejoice regardless of our circumstances, that Paul, Paul humbles us in his ability to do that. Being in jail did not prevent Paul from being joyful. Father, please forgive us for the times that we pout when we don't get our way or we refuse to rejoice because something didn't go the way we wanted. Forgive us, Lord, because it's convicting to see Paul being in prison and still able to rejoice. Finally, Lord, I just ask, please, that you would use this series to draw us closer to you, to help us experience a deeper, fresher, more life-changing relationship with your Son. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.